Today's reading comes from Galatians 3, 1 to 9. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. You may be seated. As you're seated, let me pray. Father, we thank you for the scriptures, for they point to you and they teach us how we might live. And I pray, Lord, this morning that we would be people of faith, as this text talks about, that we would be people filled with your spirit. And so we ask you that by your spirit, you would do works among us, that you would stir us to good works, that you would stir us to bless one another, that you would stir us to repent of sin, that you would stir us toward the mission that you've called us to. Lord, we just ask you that by your spirit today, you would make yourself known among us in new and fresh ways. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. What allows us who follow Jesus to be so confident of the forgiveness that we've received from him? For those of us who follow Jesus, what allows us To be so confident, to lay out a foundation that we can build upon, to understand that we can have a right standing with God. What allows us the benefit of living in light of that and sensing how we've received that? How do we come to that place of receiving forgiveness? How do we know that we are right with God? These are vital questions that we've been looking at since the beginning of our study of the little letter to the Galatian churches. Uh, It's not just the question, though, of how can I have a right standing before God and know that I've received forgiveness for my sin? It's not simply that. Uh, let, Let me put it to you in a more experiential way. Think about it in this way. How is it that we can live free in Christ and become people of peace and forgive those who've sinned against us? Not only how can I be reconciled to God, But how then does that work itself out in my life and that foundational reconciliation I have with God, how does that work itself out with people? How am I able to endure things I've endured, sufferings that I've suffered, and to then forgive people in light of the truth of the gospel? How how can we do that? What empowers that kind of life? I want us to to consider this today. What empowers that kind of life? Um, Earlier this week, uh, Jake and I sat down with a couple pastor friends in the city, and one of them had just come back from a trip to Malawi. Uh, He was there working with our global mission agency and doing some stuff in this refugee camp in Malawi. There's a massive refugee camp there. And uh, he was telling us the story about one of the pastors of a church in that refugee camp whose name is Safari. Now, if you're thinking about naming your son, you're kind of wondering, you know, if you're looking for a good biblical name, this good, I can give you some really good biblical names, Belshazzar, uh, things like that. If you're going to name your daughter, Dorcas is up there. If, if you're thinking about, don't laugh, there's people named Dorcas. You, you laugh, that's mean. You're mean-spirited. It's not me who's mean-spirited, it's you. Safari would be a legit name, though. Think about how great that is. Anyways, this brother's name is, is Safari, 
and uh, he, our friend was telling us stories about him. Uh, he's been a refugee for more than 20 years, and it's not because he hasn't had a chance to leave the refugee camp that he's in and come to the Western world, because he's had those chances, but it's because he says that he is called of God to stay in the refugee camp in Malawi. He is literally a man without citizenship apart from his heavenly citizenship. Uh, Safari is from the Tutsi tribe of people in Congo, and for some reason or another, that tribe there is uh, not welcome, and there's been much persecution against those people, and many of the Tutsi people have been killed, including Safari's family. Uh, He said that they came for his family and that they killed his father while Safari himself was laying in bed. They came into his home, they killed his father. He saw how they killed his dad. He knew who killed his dad. And he thought that they would probably kill him too. But by God's grace, he survived. He fled to a refugee camp at that time in Rwanda. And after a while, he wanted to go home. And so he left that camp and he went back to Congo. Again, he was persecuted, so he had to flee. And this time he fled to Burundi. Again, he went back to Congo. And then in 2007, he had to escape again. And he ended up in this refugee camp in Malawi. He ended up in this overcrowded refugee camp, 27,000 other people cramped into terrible circumstances where he said people were dying every day of conflict and violence. He said in his time in Congo that the church had discipled him in the ways of Jesus and had taught him much about God's grace and forgiveness and that he needed to love others in the same way that Christ had loved him. And so in the camp, he began to pray for opportunities to share the gospel. Uh, It's the same message we've been preaching here. Same message, that you can be reconciled to God, that your sin can be forgiven, that you can be united with Christ, that you can live as a person of peace, as he would talk about in his war-torn environment, and that that can be a testimony to the good news of Jesus. It's no different than the message Paul preached to the Galatians. It's no different than the message we've been preaching here. This is what he's doing in the refugee camp in Malawi. And so he's got about four people who are now with him, who have received the message of the gospel, and they fan out, and they start to go out into the refugee camp, and they start to share the good news. They're preaching the message of repentance for sin. They're preaching the message of how you can be forgiven in Christ, how you can live together in peace. And he says that God gave them favor to gain a hearing with the people that they were living around. And he tells the story and he says, here's how it kind of came to pass, that they were given a, a more legitimate hearing by people who were around them. He says this, one day there was news that a rebel had come to the camp. Many people knew what he had done in Congo and they ran and hid. I found that man all alone. I started to tremble. Here was the man in charge of the operation that killed my parents. He says he approached the man and he said to him, my brother, how are you? Do you remember me? I am the son of the pastor. It's you who killed my father. He said he looked at him and said, but my brother, it's all good. It's not you that killed, it's the thing that's inside of you that is bad. And he invited him to his house. He said, come to my house, it's your time to receive Christ. And this man came to repentance. He accepted Jesus. And for three years, the man who killed Safari's father lived in his house with him, and he discipled him. And that man is now one of the pastors of the churches that they've begun in this refugee camp. They've now got 15 churches in that camp. They've got 2,500 people who've received the Lord. And through this testimony of 
the grace of God and the forgiveness and reconciliation with God as lived out in the reconciliation between the man who murdered his father and him. They've seen thousands of people saved. He's had opportunities to leave the camp and come to the West, and he's had opportunities to come to places like Western Europe, North America, Australia. He's turned down those opportunities, and he's by choice maintained a place in the refugee camp because he believes that God has called them to reach the 27,000 people, or I think it's now up to about 40,000 people who are in that camp, because he believes that as they are relocated and as they are granted citizenship in other nations, that they will take the message of the reconciling hope of God with them into those new places and that they'll share the gospel and that through that refugee camp, he believes that they can change the world. What empowers that kind of life? Because if you're like me, you see the man who murdered your father and I don't know that I would have the same reaction as he would. I'd like to hope that by God's grace, I would have the same reaction that he had, but I'm telling you, I don't know. And I doubt that's the first reaction most of us would have in our minds. Instead of saying, I actually am really hopeful for the eternal judgment that you will suffer being apart from Christ, he says, come to my home. I want to introduce you to Jesus. Instead of the justice that he thought he would seek, he actually looked at the cross and said the justice upon the cross as Christ died in our place and for our sin, that that is sufficient even for the murderous soul that is sitting in front of me who murdered my family. That's a comprehensive view of the gospel. What empowers that kind of life, that kind of forgiveness, that kind of missional resolve? It's kind of otherworldly, isn't it? It's not normal. Apart from Christ, that's not normal. That's not normal behavior. But here's the thing about being a follower of Jesus. Nobody ever said it would be normal. It's a countercultural movement. It's a new kingdom invading this world right now. There's a new way of living. There's a new way of being human. And that's what this is talking about. This is the way of Jesus. So how do we do it? How do we live a life that evidences the truth of the gospel and the fruit of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives in such a profound way that we'd be willing to walk in reconciliation like this? Well, as we look at Galatians 3, verses 1 to 9 this morning, I want us to highlight three things about who we are as our identity as God's people. Three things that I think will help us to understand how we can live in this manner. Number one, we are cross people. Number two, we are spirit people. And number three, we are faith people. We are cross people, we are spirit people, we are faith people. Let's look at the text. Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. Paul starts it off. Now we're back to Paul. That's a great story about Safari. Now we're back to Paul. Oh, foolish Galatians. You go, okay. Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Could you imagine if that's how uh, Pastor Dave began an email to you? Right? I say Pastor Dave because I, I, I actually had it written in my notes. Could you imagine if I wrote you an email like that? And I was afraid that some of you would say yes. And so then I, I, didn't, I pulled myself out of it because Dave would never do that. But I <laughs> might. Imagine he started an email like this. Oh, Brett, you idiot. Are you actually this big of a moron or has somebody cast a spell on you? That's what this is saying. One guy paraphrased Paul's words here and he says, Oh, you idiots of Galatia, surely you can't be so idiotic. So what did they do to deserve this kind of tone from their spiritual father, Paul? What did they do? Well, they caved to the pressure of the false teachers. That's what they did. They started out all right. Paul comes in with his mission team. They're there preaching forgiveness and salvation by grace alone, through Christ alone, by faith alone. 
Not by faith and works, but by faith alone. And they're saying that the only way to be justified before God, the only way to be counted righteous before him, the only way to know that you have been forgiven your sin, that there has been an established relationship where you can have right union with God, the only way to do that is through faith in the faithfulness of Jesus. That's what Paul preached. But now they've adopted this view that salvation is actually all of that with Jesus plus doing works of the law. Paul told them that it was Jesus plus nothing that equaled everything, but they bought into the lie that salvation is Jesus plus works of the law, that Jesus plus works of the law would save them. And because he loves them, he calls them idiots. He says, you've missed it. Let me help you. The picture of the gospel that they had was so vivid and so clear and so beautiful that when contrasted with the distortion of the false gospel being preached that was brought in, that they bought into, that was insidious and flawed and wrong, Paul, he gets to the point where he actually says, I don't know what's gone on, but perhaps a sorcerer has cast a spell on you. Now, I'd like to think that Paul probably wasn't being super literal with that. I think it's probably a literary device of hyperbole where he says, I don't even know what's gone on around here. Maybe some sort of witch cast a spell on you. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Like, here's the thing that's going on in Paul's mind. He says, if you turn from the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the freedom that you've received in Christ, and you turn to thinking that your salvation is somehow by your merit, effort, earning, and works. He says, the only way that I can conceive of you believing that now after you receiving what I preach to you is some sort of demonic witchcraft. That's the only way that I can imagine you've flipped this bad. But it's not just some sort of throwaway statement when he says, who has bewitched you? If somebody bewitched someone in the first century, this word, the way that it's used, it meant that they gave you the evil eye. Not, not like the evil eye that your mom gave you when you were you know, handed in the cookie jar and you got caught. Like, like real evil. The evil eye. That's what this phrase means. It's kind of wordplay going on. Paul asks them, who has bewitched you? Who has exerted evil influence on you by the evil eye? That's that's what he's saying. Because he says it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Who has exerted an evil influence on you with the evil eye? Because when I was there, before your eyes, I portrayed publicly, vividly, clearly Christ and him crucified. Jesus was publicly portrayed. You could say vividly or clearly that he was portrayed not only as Jesus, the good man who did lots of good things for lots of people, but Jesus who was crucified. Meaning that Paul's saying, when I was there, I told you and you believed in Jesus' sinless life, his atoning death in our place and for our sins, followed by his triumphant resurrection, And you believed when I was there that that was enough to save you. And he's saying, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you to believe that that's not true? Paul is saying, I held the crucifixion of Jesus up before you, and I offered you forgiveness of sins through the work of Christ that was accomplished on the cross, and you said, yes! Who has bewitched you that you would walk away from that into bondage in some other way? Paul is saying to them, 
I did not just come to you with nice stories about the man Jesus. I brought you Jesus Christ crucified. I brought you Jesus and his bloody cross. I brought you Jesus, the Lamb of God, who was slain for the forgiveness of sin. I brought you Jesus, the crucified king who wore upon his head a crown of thorns. I brought you Jesus and his nail-scarred hands and his nail-scarred feet. I brought you Jesus with the spear scar on his side from where the spear was thrust through after he had already died upon the cross. I brought you Jesus who died, who was taken off the cross and buried, and who on the third day walked out of the grave, overcoming Satan, sin, death, hell, and the grave itself. He says, that's who I brought you. I brought you a crucified Jesus who fully accomplished everything you would ever need to be saved, and here you go thinking you can add to the work. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? See, we're people of the cross. We're not people of the cross plus our earning and efforts to top up what was maybe lacking in the sufficiency of Christ's work in our place. We don't, we don't have anything to top up. His work in our place was sufficient. But hear me. The gospel will always lead to a changed life. But it isn't those changes that save you. The gospel will always lead to a life of service to God and your neighbor in the will of God. But it isn't service to God or your neighbor that saves you. So what he's saying is, don't think that you can look at all the good things you've done and start trusting in all of those things as though that's what's giving you confidence that you're right with God. Because here's the problem. What if you're not walking that way? Do you all of a sudden lose all the confidence that you have, that you stand right before God, that you stand justified before him? Do you only look at the list of things that you've accomplished in your life in the name of Jesus and you look at those and trust them? See, you need to do things in the name of Jesus, but don't trust them for your salvation. God will transform your life. He's transforming all of our lives. Any of us who have placed our faith in Jesus are being transformed more and more day by day as long as we live. There's things we've got to do, but those things won't save us. There are good works that were prepared for us before the foundations of the world. This is in Ephesians 2. That we would walk in them. There's things God has called us to do. There, there, there's, it talks about in, in the book of James, it talks lots about how our faith is evidenced through the things that we do. But don't trust in those things that they would save you. That's the evidence that you've already walked in the sufficiency of Christ for salvation, that you've trusted in the sufficiency of Christ's work on your behalf. We're cross people. And because we're cross people, we're Holy Spirit people. Look at verses 2 to 5. Let me ask you only this, Paul says. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing of faith? Don't you love rhetorical questions? That was a rhetorical question. 
I had fun writing that because I thought it'd be funny. Some of you didn't get it. It's okay. Get it later. Ask your community group. It'll be helpful. It's super funny. Don't you love rhetorical questions? Like, have you ever been asked the rhetorical question of, hey, when you took the trash outside, but instead of putting it in the bin, you just left it on the deck? Were you just hoping to feed the raccoons? Can we do better next time? Also rhetorical question. Oh, so you thought that was the best way to approach that situation. Hmm. We've got five rhetorical questions from Paul in these four verses. What I want to do is ask the question and give what I think is the Galatian response. Question one, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? I think their answer is uh, by hearing with faith, Paul. Paul says, are you so foolish? And I think the Galatian response is, uh, it, it would seem so, Paul. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Well, well, uh, Paul, we see where you're going, and so, no, not perfected by the flesh. Feeling the force of your argument right now, remembering. Thank you. Question four, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Uh, yeah, Paul, we forgot about those difficult situations. Appreciate the letter. This is very, very helpful. Paul says, question five, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And, and they would go again, again, Paul seems like you're angling the questions at a particular kind of response. And so, yeah, it wasn't by works of the law, but actually by faith. Yeah, we remember the miracles. Pretty crazy, cool stuff. If you look back in Acts where Paul leaves Antioch, and they head into southern Galatia, and they go to the different cities there. It says that they did signs and wonders among them. The, the question is, was God faithful to do signs and wonders among you because of the way you were living and the works of law that you were accomplishing, or was it because of hearing by faith, the hearing with faith? Was, were, were wonderful things manifested by God among you because of stuff you were doing or hearing by faith? Hearing with faith. Look at question one, verse two. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? There's actually a lot going on in this text. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And he's looking for an honest answer from them. Did God start working among you by his spirit when I preached the gospel to you and you believed it with wholehearted faith? Or did God start working among you when these new false teachers showed up and you all started marching down the hill in a line to go down to their houses to get circumcised? That's, that's the question he's asking. Were you given the spirit because of works of the law that you were obedient to? Or were you given the spirit based upon your hearing and believing and trusting in Jesus by faith? Well, this faith, it's a big deal. It wasn't by works of the law, so it must be by hearing with faith. See, the Spirit came through hearing with faith, period. We're cross people, and we're spirit people, and we're faith people. Look at verses 5 to 9. Look at this. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed, or just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Verse 7 says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed 
So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Okay, what's Abraham doing in the story? All right, we've got the Gospel of Matthew, we've got the Gospel of Mark, we've got the Gospel of Luke, we've got the Gospel of John. What about the Gospel of Abraham? It says that the Gospel was preached to Abraham beforehand. That's what it says. What's happening here? Why is Abraham being brought up? Well, there's something going on. How did you receive the Spirit? Was it based upon works of the law that you accomplished, or was it based upon your receiving Christ by faith? The obvious answer is that you receive Christ by faith, and you receive the Spirit by faith, that it is not according to works of the law. But here's the reason Abraham gets brought into the conversation. The false teaching Judaizers, whatever you want to call them, the people who believed that you needed Jesus plus works of the law, they had a particular view of Abraham. Paul, preaching to them, also has a particular view of Abraham. The false teachers who had come in and said that it was Jesus plus, who are pointing to Abraham as the example of the father of circumcision. I'll show you in a moment why that is. Paul is pointing to Abraham as the example as the father of faith. There's a contrast here between those who are advocating for Jesus plus works of the law and Paul who's preaching Jesus plus nothing by faith. So in Genesis 17, Abraham is given what is called the sign of the promise of God to him. God speaks to him, Genesis 17, verses 10 and 11. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign, a sign of the covenant between me and you. The Jewish people were very concerned about upholding this identity marker. They were so serious that there were times that they even went to war to protect their rights to do this. And the false teachers in Galatia, they were serious about it too. They were teaching that to be truly saved, to be truly a child of the promise, to be truly a child of Abraham, you needed Jesus plus circumcision. Because they would appeal to Genesis 17. That if you were going to be part of the family of God, you had to follow this covenant marker. But Paul challenges this, and he says the gospel of Jesus challenges this. He says that it's right to appeal back to Abraham, but not as a person who was accepted by God through his perfect obedience to the law, which didn't come for another 430 years. But rather, it was to look back to Abraham as a man who believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's what it says in verse 6. So let me take you back five chapters earlier in Genesis to Genesis chapter 12. God makes him this promise that he's going to make his offspring a mighty nation. And he says, in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. All the families of the earth, not one particular family, but all be blessed through you. And Abraham believes God. But here's the problem. Abraham doesn't even have a son at that point. He's got no heir to the promise that he's received from God. Trying to figure out how is God going to bless the whole world through me if I don't yet even have a son. Genesis chapter 15 shows us this. Look at this. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram, whose name hadn't been changed to Abraham yet, came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. 
was his servant. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to them, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is what's quoted in Galatians chapter 3, verse 6. What Paul is getting at here is beautiful. The Old Testament sign of being in covenant with God was circumcision. Paul's saying, no longer. The New Testament sign of being in covenant with God is the reception of the Holy Spirit. If you receive the Holy Spirit, it's not by works of the law, but by faith. This is what John Stott said. They, speaking of the Galatians, had trusted in the Christ exhibited in the gospel. So they had received the Spirit. They had neither submitted to circumcision, nor obeyed the law, nor even tried to. All they had done was to hear the gospel and believe. And the Spirit had been given to them. These being the facts of their experience, Paul argues it is ludicrous that having begun with the Spirit, they should now expect to complete with the flesh. This is the big deal. The big deal is the giving of the Holy Spirit comes by faith, not by works of the law. The big deal is that the covenant marker of the true people of God is no longer circumcision, but the reception of the Spirit. This is promised all over the Old Testament. Let me show you one of the examples from hundreds of years before Christ. Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27 says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit, capital S, spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. He says there's going to be something that happens upon the arrival of the Messiah. It's going to change things. Let me give you a new spirit. John the Baptist prophesied this too. Luke chapter 3, verse 16 says, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. All of these promises came to fruition on the day of Pentecost. Here's what happens. Jesus is crucified. We are people of the cross. He's put upon the cross He absorbs the wrath of God for the sin of the world, and he dies hanging on the cross. Some of his disciples come, and they take him down from the cross, and they bury him in a borrowed tomb. On the third day, he walks out of the borrowed tomb, and over the next 40 days, he makes various appearances to the disciples, teaching them all of the Old Testament to be interpreted through what he had already accomplished. He teaches the disciples this, and at the end of those 40 days, he says this to them. He says, wait in Jerusalem, for you will be, it says in Luke 24, endowed or endued with power from on high. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. It's going to be a game changer. 
something is going to shift. You are going to see it. You will receive the Spirit just as promised in the Old Testament, and you receive it by faith, not by any of your works. And so Jesus tells them to wait there in Jerusalem for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This is what happens on the day of Pentecost. And on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes upon all the disciples who are gathered there, and they all start to speak in other tongues, and everybody else standing around them goes, what is going on? And Peter says, great opportunity for a good sermon. Peter gets up and he begins to preach and he quotes Joel chapter two, that the spirit of the Lord will be poured out upon the sons and daughters. And he, and he goes into this whole text. And then he says, this is what's happening now. The promise of the spirit has come. There's such force and such anointing and such power in the presence of the disciples and the presence of God, that these people who are within earshot and hearing what's going on, they cry out. Peter's preaching to them, Acts 2.36. He says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Look at this, verse 37. Now when they heard, that, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And he said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, which means all the people who are not Jewish living on the west coast of Canada in 2018. And it says, everyone whom the Lord, our God, calls to himself. This is the promise of the Spirit for you. It's the same thing that happened to the Galatians. Paul reminds them of it. Galatians 3 verse 2 says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? By hearing with faith. They did nothing for it but believe and yet received it. And when you place your trust in Jesus, when you place your faith in the faithfulness of Jesus, you are saved and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The same thing that happened on the day of Pentecost and the same thing that happened in the lives of the Galatians and in other places in Scripture, the same thing happens in 2018 in Vancouver. When you believe, you receive the Spirit. You believe, place your faith in the faithfulness of Jesus, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Some of you may have been taught over the years that there is sort of a two-class Christianity. There are the Christians and then there are the Spirit-filled Christians. I want to tell you that that's not right. I want to tell you that there is one class of Christians, that when you believe, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, you can be filled with the Spirit time and time and time again every day of your single, every single day of your life. You can be filled with the Spirit multiple times, but there is one reception of the Spirit, and that comes when you place your faith in Jesus. There are no works that you do to receive the Spirit. The Spirit comes by hearing with faith. Look at rhetorical questions two and three. Verse 3, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So question 2 says, are you so foolish? The answer, I guess so. You wouldn't be writing us this letter. Question 3, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? He's saying, you Galatians, you received everything I preached and you're people of the cross, and that makes you people of the Spirit. So why do you think that you can add to what Christ has done? Why do you think that you want to get started in the power of the Spirit, but then you want to finish it off on your own? 
Paul's saying, what's the deal with that? Uh, There's a story of a a guy in the 1800s. His name was Charles Blondin. He set up a rope across Niagara Falls. I think he's the first guy to tightrope walk across Niagara Falls. This guy tightrope walks back and forth across Niagara Falls. He actually gets so confident that he does it forwards a few times, and then he actually walks backwards on the tightrope across Niagara Falls, a big crowd of people. He gets so confident that he actually sets up a stool on the high wire and eats his lunch. And then he falls. I'm just kidding. He didn't fall. He goes back and forth, and everybody in the crowd are watching him, and they do something crazy. He goes over to the crowd, and he says, hey, any of you want to hop on my shoulders, and I'll walk you to the other side? Because crowds are crowds, there was obviously some idiot who said yes. Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. I didn't have anything else going on later today. Hops on his shoulders, and Blondin starts walking him across. Now, can you imagine if he said to Blondin halfway across, hey, I know you're the expert. I know you're the guy. I've seen you do it a whole bunch of times. Uh... I think you've got me far enough. I'd like to finish it on my own now, please. Like, that'd be the second stupid decision that guy made that day. How much different are we? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? That's why Paul calls them fools. They start out in faith in the power of the Spirit, and then they think they can finish it off in their own strength. Listen to the words of Jesus from John chapter 6, verse 63. He says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The only way to live a life of faith where we can walk along the way of Jesus is to be cross people, spirit people, Faith people. Flesh, no help. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Christ City, how can you live a life where you have the empowerment to do something like forgive the man who murdered your family? Because that power is available to you. How can you live a life that says, I choose to be a refugee in this life, to live in this camp in terrible conditions and violence because I think God's called me. How can you have the resolve to live this way? It's because the Spirit's opened your eyes to the future you've got, and it's glorious. And our life here and now is but a mist. We're cross people, and so we know our past is dealt with. We're spirit people. We know our future is promised. Oh, and we do it all by faith in the Son of God who gave his life for us. Would you stand with me as we respond today?